Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify. Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 402. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, show 402. We've got a couple of little announcements to make before we get in. And this show is actually we're going to have two main stories. And eventually we're going to start ramping up to kind of do two main stories a week. But that's coming in the future. But... Two little announcements, and the first one is, listen, listen, Jeremy Sals, our assistant editor, the man behind, the man in the engine room, finding all these stories, he's just been picked for one of the writers of the future, like a finalist there, so how cool is that, a big, Jeremy, I mean, everyone knows how kind of hard, you know, there's thousands upon thousands of story entries getting into that, so Jeremy's been picked for one of them as well. And, you know, there's a chance, there's a tiny chance there he could fly out earliest, I think he was saying as well, to get in with all that crowd. <gasps> Good luck, Jeremy, and like you say, a big congratulations. That's just, you know, and you, you know, like a tell bit quality there, man, it was fantastic. So well done, sir, brilliant. And the next one is, we are just myself and Craig Napier are just in this process, within this next few hours of getting the newsletter out the revamped newsletter and we're having all sorts of kind of things in there and hopefully there's going to be semi-regular on a kind of two-week basis we're going to get this newsletter out and we're going to have new releases books new authors to look for tell them a little bit about you know what's going on in kind of the district of wonders what's been happening on other shows what stories they've got and there's all lots of other little cool things we're just getting working out there now so please 
pop over to any one of the sites and sign up for the newsletter. You can come up to starshipsover.com. Just there, sign up. And you get, you know, even when you start, you get kind of like freebies there. You've got Starship Sova's Volume 1 you get. You get Amy H. Sturgis talking about time travel with Ted Chang and Connie Willis. That's in a few days' time. You get that one. And like I say, you'll be kind of enrolled in this kind of the new, the new, new newsletter where we just, you know, we, we just want to make this as like a little kind of little fix of science fiction as well, just to give you hints of like what else is out there, you know, when you just kind of, you open up your email on your way to work, not when you're driving, and all oh, right, oh, so we're talking about a few authors in there as well. So do, you know, do have a look for that newsletter, and like I say, each each time as well, we'll put in, or I'll put in, the Starship Sova's Originals, an episode from the Originals, the, the first, the very first, which we don't like to talk about, <laughs> 100 shows, you'd think a family doesn't like to talk about the black sheep. First 100 shows, I'm going to start off with number one, Alfred Bester, and just eventually work my way through that, putting in one of those shows each week as well, so you can download it and listen to that as well. How cool is that? Sign up to the newsletter. It will be a fantastic and worth your while. I also want to mention a big, big hello to Brad Parker. Brad is the, the kind of an extraordinary artist. He's got the Tiki Shark art, Hawaii, Hawaii no less, man. And we actually used Brad's art on one of Tales to Terrify shows. And, you know, God bless him, Brad listens to the show and, you know, is a great supporter of Starship Sofa. And he's very kind, just amazing. He sent over 2015 calendar and 2016 calendar and some postcards as well of his art and the signed as well. Man, I'll put a picture on, coming over from the website, I'll put a picture on and you can see Brad's work. And it is so distinctive and so nice, man. Do you know what I mean? I would love to get a nice big, that's what I'm worried about. These calendars, Brad, came over in perfect condition. Do you know what I mean? We're trying to get a... A nice big print over. Do you know what I mean? Like a, like a canvas. My, oh, I'd be terrified in case it got bloody... You'd have to tell us if it kind of if they can get over okay or not. Do you know what I mean? Because I'll certainly get myself one of them. They are lovely. Anyway, a big thank you. Like I say, it's part of the job. Get little freebies now and again. Do you know what I mean? But big thank you to Brad. Go over and have a look. I'll put a link on the Tiki Shark Art at Hawaii. And do you know what? Honestly, the other day when I was kind of just looking at Brad, I just leave, I, I open his browser because his music starts. He's got this kind of Honolulu Hawaiian music there. And I have it on in another browser just open. And this music was just looping all the time for a couple of hours there. I don't know if I'll get lucky or get slapped in the face because hello, I mean hello. I love you and goodbye. So, Brad, we're going to say a big, big thank you, sir. Thank you so much. So, first up is the main fiction. And like I said, we've got two main fictions today. I'll tell you who's coming in. We have Stuart C. Baker with his story Behind the First Years. And it's narrated by Jonathan Dans. Then we have Changing Body Templates by Bogie Takas, which was originally published in Strange Bedfellows, an, an anthology of political science fiction. That's coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. (laughs) 
So don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years in the IT industry, helping you all with your little problems there. I'll put a link on to Octagon Technology. If you want to go over there and just get some help and, you know, advice for the internet and the computers you use. And by God, do I need advice. Big thank you to Clive and Diane and Camille as well. Big thank you to all of them. So, first up then, we will play Stuart C. Baker with his main fiction, Behind the First Years. Like I say, it was originally published in Cosmos magazine. Stuart C. Baker is an academic librarian and a speculative fiction writer. His fiction and poetry has appeared in Daily Science Fiction, Nature and Flash Fiction Online, amongst other magazines. Stuart was born in England, well, God bless you, sir, and has spent his time in Southern Carolina, Japan and California, and now lives in Western Oregon with his wife and children. Hello, if anyone asks... He says he's from the internet, his website, and at infamacy at .net. I'll um, put a link onto that as well. Like I say, a big thank you to Stuart for letting me play this story. This is narrated by Jonathan Dans. Oh, what a fine friend and a good supporter of Starship Sover as well. You know, a little kind of plug there if you want to donate to Starship Sover on a monthly basis. It would be fantastic. Jonathan does that, and I'm very proud of him for doing that as well. Jonathan Dans, he's got a cracking, great voice, by the way. Jonathan Dans exists in a parallel dimension that looks especially like West Virginia. When he's not trundling over a rock and root on his velocipede, he labours to hammer stories of unruly words. With the help of his wife and daughter, he managed to keep track of his car keys, his priorities and his mind. Yeah, we need them. And he says, should you find yourself in the dusty corners of cyberspace, you can pop over to his glimpse of words and coffee his little site at jonathandans.com jonathan you're a star sir thank you so much so the starship sova is very proud to present behind the first years by stuart c baker five short hours to planet fall pete sat watching magda die her hands were thin and wrinkle fine the leathern color of paper 500 years old she had been archivist sixty years before him there in the great, silent bulk of the ship. "'But what am I to do when we land?' he asked. "'I have only been transcriber, Magda. I never—' "'You must look behind the shelf of the first years.' "'The shelf of the first years is empty.' "'Did I say on, foolish man?' Magda tisked. "'How can you record history if you do not listen?' Her eyes were as sharp as her voice, clear and precise, honed from the long years of watching her duties entailed. Pete flushed and bowed his head. Behind the shelf, Magda. I understand. How can she possibly die, he thought. Yet the gray-white walls of her quarters were hung with fresh-picked jasmine to hide the stink of it. You understand nothing, foolish man. Look at me. And again kinder when he did not. Look at me. Yes, Magda. What lies behind the shelf of the first years is important, but does not change your duty. You must record all things as I have. Record and preserve, Peter. In all these lifetimes under space, that has been our calling. Record and preserve. Yes, Magda. He had first spoken the words fifteen years prior, when he became transcriber. His parents cried during the ceremony, 
then left him to go back to bottom. Magda had been old even then, and Pete used to go to bed terrified of finding her dead when he woke, and him still an untrained youth. Now she was going at last. She coughed once, twice, making no move to clean the deep red flecks from her lips. Her eyes had gone dim. Peter, she said. Peter. She reached out with one frail hand, and he took it. Yes, Magda. You will be building the history of a world. Remember, the first years. Pete did not respond. She was gone. He placed her hand back on her stomach and wiped her lips one last time with the damp cloth the ship's doctor had left him. The man waited outside the door, polite and sympathetic. I know it's hard, but it may be for the best. The dispersal would have been hard on her. Pete nodded, not trusting himself to speak, and left the doctor to his work. It was eighteen floors down to the archives, but instead of the express lift, he took the stairs. Something Magda had said didn't sit right, but he could not put his finger on it. Walking helped him think. Remember the first years was a strange directive. The people of that time had been content to track their history in transient digital form, with the result that little was left. Pete thought with regret of the few scraps of paper that had come down to them, scrawled inventories, engineer-neat lists of meaningless names. In his darker moments, Pete felt the first people were mocking him, conspiring to erase all knowledge of why they had been sent away, what calamity had befallen Earth. But what did it matter? Earth was a planet he would never see, and in just over four hours he would be walking the surface of a world untouched by human hands, a place to start anew. Even Magda's death could not entirely remove the thrill of it. She had died well, clear and alert until the last, and it was true the dispersal would have been hard on her. Dispersal! Soon they would spread across the surface of the unsullied planet, down amidst the mottled green and black they had so far seen only on the vid screens, where it hung in the middle distance between the ship and the system's star. He came out on the archives level and picked up his pace, he had set up an interview with Captain McAllister Zoe the night before, the first part of his duty. He would not have long to examine the shelf of the first years. He was reaching for the panel to open the ever-dimmed rooms of the archives when he realized. Under. Magda said, under space. Captaincy was in McAllister Zoe's bones. His family had guided the ship since the time of the first people, or so it was said, he greeted Pete and spoke to him of approach vectors and automated systems, stopping occasionally to check in with an officer or to type arcane sequences of keys into the mempad before him. In one of these pauses, Pete told him of Magda's death. That old witch, the captain said. I always thought she'd live forever. He paused, coughed, scratched his temple with his middle finger. Sorry, I know you were close. It was her time, but there was something she said before she passed that I thought you might be able to explain. Shoot. She was talking of the archivist's code, record and preserve. I've heard it. Um, yes, but it was how she described it. In all these lifetimes under space, that has been our calling. She said under, not in. What do you make of that? The captain shrugged. 
She was old. She was dying, a slip of the tongue, some misconnection between her brain and her lips. What's to make of it? The explanation made as much sense as any Pete could think of, but McAllister Zoe had not been there. Magda had been too alert, her voice too clear and strong for the word to be delirium or sickness. He remembered the way she had taken him to task for not listening clearly. There was something to what she had said. He was sure of it. He thanked the captain and made his way to bottom. Perhaps popular memory could tell him what high command could not. Bottom. Bottom, so called for its location at the lowest part of the ship, was a vast expanse of inspired agro-engineering which doubled as the ship's food supply and as a living space for most of its population. It was as large as the rest of the ship. The express lift plunged from the light-specked ceiling and sank past moisture sprays and clouds. The rolling green landscape which sped to meet him was the same as he remembered from before he had been taken above to the archives. He could just make out the pale, blue-tinged metal of the inner bulkhead a kilometer or so away. Then the trees rushed up and overhead, and the lift doors hissed open. The smell of the bottom was earthy and moist, as different from the paper-dry odors of the archives as possible. He strode past farms and villages he knew from his childhood, passing within meters of the homes where his family and friends still lived. But he did not have time for a visit today. At last he reached his destination. Old Jadwiga had been ancient when he was still a child and, unlike Magda, had lived the hard life of a bottom woman. She walked with a cane, bent over and shuffling, and her hands trembled as she invited him to sit. Her eyes were roomy, and he had to repeat Magda's dying words several times before she understood him. Under space. Hmm. She sat quiet for a few minutes after that, but Pete waited patiently. As slow as it was, even old Jadwiga's memory would be faster than trying to find just the right bottom lore in the archive's massive collection, which filled kilometers of shelving. Just as Pete began to doubt his assessment, the old woman spoke again. I remember, under the time of Captain Zoe, there was a great anger among the people. Captain Zoe? But that was ridiculous. The last captain of that name had served almost one hundred years ago. Jadwiga couldn't possibly be that old, could she? Yes, yeah, yes, people were angry, for the upper deck families took the best crops, and we in the bottom had always to make do with their leavings. One year, when I was a young girl, Jadwiga continued to speak, drawing out story after story of those long dead and their actions. Pete let her voice fade into the background, half listening, for anything about the ship being under space instead of in it. After an hour, he excused himself and left the old woman to her memories. They were fascinating enough, but of all she had said, there were only two things relevant to Magda's words. First, something he'd forgotten from his childhood. People here took the designation of bottom with pride. They were liable to refer to any other part of the ship as above, but Magda had come from an upper-deck family, and in any case she had placed the entire ship under space, not just bottom. The second was a children's rhyme, cryptic to the point of uselessness. Under space and over all, ship-bound people standing tall, 
When they reach their destination, they will build a new old nation. He shook his head as he re-entered the lift. Even the stacks, with their information overload, would likely have given him more than that. There were only two hours left to landing, and Captain McAllister Zoe expected Pete to make a record of the dispersal. He hoped there would still be time to make it to the shelf of the first years and retrieve whatever Magda had hidden there. The stacks were dark, but Pete did not bother with the light. The shelf of the first years was easy enough to find without looking. It was the only one empty. He ran his hands over the smooth metal surface, then crouched down, feeling around behind the shelf with one awkward, outstretched arm. There was only open space. He wondered if he had, after all, put too much stock in the words of an old dying woman. Then, just as he was standing, giving up, something brushed the tips of his fingers, something hard, with the texture of rough-spun cloth. He leaned his shoulder into the shelf, extending his arm until the muscles burned, and closed his hand around the item. A book. Back in the lift, on the way to McAllister Zoe and the ceremony, he brushed dust off the cover and read the title embossed in the spine. The Book of the Ship. He had expected something grander from the way the book was hidden and Magda's cryptic promises. He flipped to a random page, hoping it would make the book's purpose clear. It was in one of the old languages. Extended isolation studies, which have shown the feasibility of interplanetary travel, were first carried out. Other pages were filled with similar stuff. Exciting as it was from an archival point of view, it was clearly very old. How could any of it be important to him in the days to come? Perhaps he was misunderstanding the text, he thought. He had never mastered the old languages as Magda had but he remembered her words as she lay dying. How can you record if you do not listen? The same must be true of reading, of observation in general. He would have to take the time to decipher it, but time was something he did not have. He would have to wait until the dispersal had begun. McAllister Zoe and half a dozen officers were crammed into the control room with Pete, the captain going through the schedule one last time, before the live broadcast began. First Officer Xiang, you will say the words to set us on our way. I will then inform the ship about the dispersal order and the dangers that may await them on the planet. He had rehearsed these briefly already, his voice terse as he rattled off the items of a list apparently long memorized. The possibility of indigenous flora and fauna, dangerous or benign, likely meteorological phenomena, Dangerous or benign. How to handle riots from the people of bottom, who are unused to change. We touched down three hours ago, ahead of schedule, the captain concluded. All systems show a planet that matches the specifications from the few remaining scientific records of the first people. Oxygen content and purity is similar to Earth's and the ship's, and our exterior sensors show pressure well within comfort range. Not for the first time, Pete marveled at the shipbuilding genius of the first people. He had felt nothing whatsoever during the landing. The ship was silent and still as before. His regret for their missing records intensified, but at least he had the book. The ceremony made up little more than a scant few words directed at the present, not the future. Vague and visionary things Pete did not bother to remember. The first moments of the dispersal, 
would be infinitely more important. And anyway, an officer with a vid crew was transmitting it all live to the entire ship. They filed into the airlock, thick with the dry smell of centuries of stale emptiness. Pete, at the front of the crowd with the captain, watched the dull steel of the outer door. He wished the first people had put in windows. The scenes from the vid display had done little to whet his appetite for the new world. Yet, as the door hissed open, he could not help closing his eyes tight, preparing poetic turns of phrase to use later when he wrote the events of this day, their first on the planet, the fruition of all their long labors. But there was a black void beyond the ship when he did look, the only light a dim yellow which spilled from the airlock and illuminated little save a narrow steel ledge jutting up against the ship. The vid screen had shown hills rock-strewn but wide and gentle. There was a sudden surge as the officers at the back tried to push forward out into the planet. Pete stumbled back, jostling against the press of bodies. He felt more than he saw the newly empty space beside him. McAllister Zoe had fallen over the side of the ledge. His hoarse yells echoed down and away, punctuating and jerking thuds until at last all was silent. That silenced them all, and one of the officers took out a maintenance flashlight. The stark white beam pulled the fragments of horror out of the dark, bloody streaks left by the captain's fall on the side of the ship, the hull stretching endlessly down, juxtaposed not against some outcropping of rock or grass, but hard, slick steel. Dust and mildewed greens. Across the ledge was a vast platform, similar in design to the ship itself. The far wall was rough stone and stretched up into darkness beyond the range of their vision. Set into it were two massive steel doors. The words, May God forgive us what we have done, scrawled, rust-colored, and huge above them in one of the ancient earth languages. Pete translated for the others, his mind numb, captainless and bewildered. Were they still on earth? How and why? They wandered the platform in disarray, all thoughts of their grand journey's faded destination fallen away into the dark. Three of the officers joined McAllister's O, walking slow, deliberate steps off the ledge, their descent all the more harrowing for its silence. Pete and the others heard only soft thuds and scratches as they tumbled off the hull of the ship they had served. At last, Pete remembered the book, Magda's dying words. She had known. All the archivists had. His head felt loose on his shoulders as he staggered back to the airlock to read by its light. It took a team of six rugged bottom laborers several hours to shift the doors at the cavern's edge. While they worked, other teams walked its interior, measuring and probing, trying to find some sort of explanation. Pete read. The book turned out to hold two separate texts, joined who knew when. The first, older text, was the shorter of the two, and so despite the difficulty of its language, Pete tackled it first. It was set on official-looking paper and dated in the old style, which had not been used as far as Pete was aware, since the second or third generation. This was the portion of the book he had turned to when he first found it. The terminology seemed willfully obscure at points, and even when the words were clear, the grammar was strange to him. But eventually, Pete determined that it was a study on simulated space travel, commissioned by some long-ago Earth government. He had struggled through half of it before the team breached the door, revealing empty, 
winding caves that branched and joined in maze-like arrays. The ship crew abandoned their search of the cavern where the ship sat and spread outward. It was dispersal of a sort, but tethered and impermanent, arranging into the caves which always returned to the bulk of the ship. They found none of the promised meadows, no life of any sort save mildew and fungi. There were streams, little trickling spots of damp which were clear and cool as promises on their tongue, filtered by the endless rock. The water tasted bitter in the darkness of their underground prison. The teams were always careful to mark the way back to the ship, placing fluorescent strips from long-term storage on the walls or floors of the caves. But even so, some did not return. Other teams would come across markings which simply stopped, with no sign of life nearby, and nobody to answer their calls. When he was not ranging, Pete read the book. By now it was clear the ship had never left Earth, although the reason for this eluded them all. Pete skipped the rest of the first text and moved to the second, which was actually harder to read despite its language being more recognizably his own. It was technical in nature, describing systems the ship used to simulate space travel. Even though he didn't understand most of what it said, Pete continued to read. Then one day, Pete's team found the wall. It was at the end of a long passage, which wound inexorably upwards, and it was made of brick. Pete watched, glad he had been there when it happened, as two bottom men scrabbled at the caulking, hammered at the bricks with stalagmites they ripped from the cave floor, breaking down the dirt and rocks and scree beyond with equal fervor. He made no move to participate, caught up in fantasies of what they would find on the other side, and readying what he would say when they returned to the ship. All they found was ruin and stagnation, silence and death, an ash-choked swath of land which stretched away beyond their new-made exit in the brick. Clouds of the dust blew past what must have once been a town, billowing out gray plumes from shattered buildings and tugging formless bundles of stuff. The two men who had torn down the wall walked off into the dust, searching for life, supplies, or signs of what had happened. After an hour or two, with weak sunlight ribboning down, the other members of the party went too. Pete stayed. He would report back to the ship, he told them. And so he watched and waited until the sun died a fiery red and the cold of evening set in. In the dim emptiness, he seemed to hear sounds in the distance, low, sinuous hissings from the depths of history. The clouds of ash seemed to hide shadowy figures, but when they swirled away, revealed only a shattered building, a rusting, useless metal hulk, or nothing at all. He shuddered and returned to the ship's resting place, alone. When he arrived, they questioned him. Why had he returned alone? Where was his team? What of the time they had spent out in the caves? He only shook his head, filled with grief, and passed them by. The secrets of the ship. Yes, Captain Siong. Nothing of why we're here, who the first people were, or what purpose they hoped to achieve but all the secrets of the ship systems, everything we need to prolong the illusion. And why would we do this, even though you found a way out? Just come with me, Captain. Come with me and you will understand. Hope, purpose, meaning, happiness of a sort. What we had in the years before was infinitely, unthinkably better than what awaits us without. Captain Siong took little convincing once he had seen the desolation which lay beyond the caves, he and Pete took a few steps out down the hillside until the ash began to choke them, cold, acrid fingers down their throats. 
They heard the sounds, saw things that were not there. Captain Tsiang swore he felt something brush his shoulder, though Pete was only a few feet away and saw nothing but ash. They turned back lest they lose sight of the entrance. Earth held nothing for them, and if it did, they were terrified of it. Inside the cave mouth, the other officers waited. At a shake of the head from Captain Tsiang, they began to rebuild the wall, working in silence. On the walk back to the ship, they tore up the guide strips. Over the next few days, as bottom teams tore up the other strips, removing all signs which pointed to their ship, Pete and the officers between them got the ship's systems rebooted. When all was complete, they sealed the cavern doors and closed off the ship once more. The ship's journey was a lie, but it was one with promise, promise they would pass on to later generations. Pete finished transcribing the last of the records from the dispersal and sat back cracking his knuckles. It was only right, he thought, that he complete his duty as archivist before betraying it. His generation would keep few records and preserve none of them. He lifted the paper from the desk and set it in the book he held, behind the two older sets of papers, then walked with it from the stacks, nodding to the two officers who stood at the ready with vidcams and torches. At the door he stopped to watch, one last time, one last event. The fire swept, cleansing of all they had recorded, all their history and lore. He felt no regret at the destruction of their legends and dreams, their pasts and their futures. After a while, he set the book firmly under his arm, turned on his heel, and walked to the express lift and the rich, verdant hills of bottom. Behind him, the tongues of flame licked over everything but the shelf of the first years, already long since empty. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Stuart, Stuart C. Baker, sir. It has been an honour to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And Jonathan, just got that voice, man. Wow. Why do I sound like this? Do you know what I mean? Imagine me trying to narrate a story. And, and then the flying machine took off across the universe and was never seen again. <laughs> yes, no, I think I'll leave that to the professionals. So... Next next story age is, should I say, Changing Body Templates by Bodhi Takas. Originally published in Strange Bedfellows, an anthology of political science fiction. Now, Bogie, I'm not sure how I'm getting your name, if I'm butchering it or not, but my apologies. You know, but like I say, this story, again, big hats off to Jeremy to kind of pulling this story out of the bag. Thank you so much. Bogie Takas is a neutrally gendered Hungarian Jewish person who recently moved to the U.S., who has had speculative fiction and poetry published in a variety of venues like Strange Horizons, Clark's Word, Lightspeed, Queers Destroy, Science Fiction and Apex Magazine, amongst others. Way to go. That is, that is some calibre there. Bogey posts science fiction story and poem recommendations on Twitter on a daily basis under Diverse Stories hashtag and hashtag Diverse Poems. You can follow Bogey at Bogey Person or visit the website. I will put a little link on there. Now, this story, this this this, this is why, you know what I mean? Don't blow me on trumpet. Why Starship Sofa's so good? <laughs> it's just, it's certainly not me, but it's just the narrators. This narration is narrated by Nicole Doolin. 
Nicole Ayers, a writer and a voice actor. Her fiction, poetry and plays have been published and presented and her voice has appeared in various mediums. Nicole has performed numerous narrations for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts such No Sleep Podcast, Far-Fetched Fables and Tales to Terrify. She also narrates classic literature in her own podcast, Audio Literature Odyssey. To learn more about Nicole, you can visit the website at NicoleDoolin.com. <laughs> Listen, this story is fantastic. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Changing Body Templates by Bogi Takach. Narrated by Nicole Doolin. Zero. My little brother Donnie didn't say, I want to be an astronaut. He said, I want to be an Aroshi astronaut, as he hopped around our cramped living quarters pretending to be a spaceship. My mother frowned. Why an Aroshi astronaut? Why not a Nefeji astronaut, one of our own? He shrugged, not even looking at her. Better chances that way. Mom laughed and cheered him on, but that was the first time I noticed that peculiar sharpness in her voice. The sharpness I'd learned to avoid. The sharpness that tinged her words whenever she was discussing politics. One. We were sitting on boxes. The back room behind the main laboratories was filled with useless junk. We did not have fabbers and we tried to preserve everything we could, in case some of the equipment broke down. This was one of the best places on Nefeji Station to discuss topics and relative safety. Lotsi, our political officer, never dared to get close to any of the machines, and for good reason. He earned his qualifications in a different field, one that used rubber hoses and finger clamps as its tools of trade. So the gossip went. I doubted they still used such crude devices, but the sentiment behind their actions was still the same. Lotsi himself claimed he had a degree in centralized economics, from an evening school, and that indeed was what his file stated. For all we knew, he wrote his file himself. I shifted uncomfortably on top of a large carton of power cubes. My buttocks ached. The politicals say they will get us a form shifter. Next month, worst case. That true? Donnie twisted a long, curly strand of his beard, wrapped it around his fingers. He seemed equally dubious and disinterested. Lotsy is bragging about it. You think he'd risk such an embarrassment? He sighed. I'll believe it when I see it with my own eyes. We never put much faith in the politicals, even when they were working in our interests. Everyone in the lab was crowded around the form shifter, watching the big gray box printed with Dothran text, with expressions ranging from enthusiasm to reverence. <clears throat> Donnie cleared his throat. There has to be a catch. He crossed his arms and stared at Lotsy point-blank. Lotsy tried to take a small step back, instinctively, but he hit the wall of bodies pressed together behind him and almost lost his balance. Hands steadied him. Small chuckles rose up, their source indistinct. Lotsy frowned. It doesn't come with instructions. He surveyed the crowd with a grim expression. He was trying hard to regain his respectable and commanding airs. I am told you can reverse-engineer it. Silence. No one wanted to commit to a definitive statement. We can try, I finally said in my best cheerful tone. His frown only deepened. 
Our lab reverse-engineered the Biscar control interface. We are the best in space biologicals. This isn't some kind of mythical alien technology. The Dothron are human like us. He said our lab. I suppressed a grimace. This has a heavy physics aspect, Donnie interjected. We should partner with Hanina's team. The expression on Lotzi's face made it clear that he wouldn't share the potential glory. He really wanted to be promoted, away from us, into a cushy position in central government, maybe even in a Roshi space, among humans who displayed as little care for our well-being as the aliens in their movies, if not even less. So, who briefs him? Donnie leaned back against a bulkhead. Five of us from the In Vivo team were crowded together in our little storage closet, our hiding place. He's going to yell at us, Kata said and hugged herself. He's going to scream. The animals aren't dead, Donnie remarked, acerbic as usual. And they grow back their lost limbs, I know, but they do not adapt. She was on the verge of an outburst, I could feel it, and I drew away as best I could, not to give her space, but from fear. We lived in such close quarters on the station that every interpersonal clash carried danger. Pimas grew an extra limb of sorts, one of the animal techs said, to reach the banana on the ceiling. That's one chimpanzee out of five, I said, also close to losing my patience, and none of the lower animals showed anything of the sort. This kind of adaptation is tied to planning, Donnie said and crossed his arms. Higher cognition. His statements always sounded like gospel, unquestionable and true just because he himself said them. Sometimes I could have kicked him, even though he was my brother, my colleague, my closest confidant. I huffed. So what do you propose? Human trials, obviously. He looked at me with the same gaze he'd used to skew a Lotzi on that fateful meeting. A chill ran over me. Approval would take months. The ethics committee isn't in session until after Liberation Day. Kata's voice trembled. Please don't yell, I thought at her. Please don't yell. We don't need approval from the ethics committee if we don't involve others. Forget it, Kata yelled. I'm not going to talk people into this. Not on my conscience. What if something goes wrong? Donnie was outwardly calm, but I could feel the anger roiling in him. I'm saying we try it on ourselves. No need to involve others. It's human technology. I'm sure it has the proper safeguards built in. So, do you volunteer? The lab tech who had mentioned the chimpanzee spoke up, and he was calm, genuinely calm. Not intimidated by Donnie in the slightest. I volunteer. I blinked in surprise at the sound of my voice. Sharp, raspy, and dangerous. We walked along the perimeter, just the two of us, merging with the evening crowd. The station was unbearably crowded, but what could we do? The Oroshi controlled all our incoming and outgoing traffic. They didn't let most of us leave, certain we'd collectively make a dash for Dothron space. So you want to be an astronaut, Donnie said, not really mocking, just bitter. You wanted to be the astronaut. An Oroshi astronaut, huh? <laughs> he chuckled. Mom still teases me about that. 
That was the one. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Expected I laughed out loud and heads turned in our direction. I hate the BTE list, Katta said and stretched, yawning. Hate, hate, hate it. If not for the banned technological exports list, we'd be out of a job, I told her. The sleepier we were, the more impatient I grew. Twenty hours of looking at data would do that to everyone, I thought. Even a Dothron astronaut. We'd research something else, Donnie said. Real research, not reverse engineering. This is important. I drew myself to my full height, but Donnie was so much taller than me it must have looked comical. We need to keep on the right side of the Oroshi. So we steal from the Dothron to gain the appreciation of the Oroshi. What if the tide turns? Kata jumped up. Shh! Anyone can hear. So what? The worst they can do to me is put me in a cell doing the same thing I do in this sardine can. Donnie waved his hands around. Quiet! Could we just return to the task at hand? I hissed. They fell silent and I returned to examining the data, but my thoughts drifted. The Dothron had a BTE list and the Hiroshi prided themselves on not having one, talking about openness and democracy until they were blue in the face. But we all knew it was because Hiroshi technology was so behind the Dothron. The Hiroshi had a larger empire and more military strength. At least so they claimed. But in many respects they were far behind the Dothron. The best Oroshi minds worked on catching up, the propaganda said. In fact, a lot of the research was done in the occupied territories. Basel, Edergen, even our crummy Nefagy station. The best Oroshi minds considered reverse engineering a task beneath them. They were busy with original research. I shook my head. I'd better go through the numbers once again. After all, this time my life was on the line. I still had a hard time believing it. Our boss yelled until the walls resonated with his words. Then he agreed to our plan. Two. Donnie sighed in exasperation. 
We know they have some kind of training program. It's not going to work if we go into this unprepared. You mean, I go into this unprepared, I wanted to say. But I bit back my words. No need to antagonize him. I'd already alienated half of the lab team with my snarls and erratic behavior. They understood the reasons, but that in itself did not improve the situation. So what do you propose? It was clear he did not have an inkling. He sat down heavily on top of an office desk and kept himself busy by crossing his legs and shifting until he seemed comfortable. He frowned, not looking at me. Then he finally volunteered an answer. It has to be some kind of behavioral program. The guy from intelligence was sure there were no drugs involved, no direct stimulation, no... No, nothing. Right, so what does it say? I scrolled through the verbose and mostly useless report. Intelligence folk wanted to prove their worth to the Hiroshi as much as we did. Some kind of multi-sensory continuum? I glanced up at him. What sort of jargon is this? I blinked, and before he could answer, I realized, virtual reality? Gosh, that's so dated. Simulations, I guess, of the target state when the participant is capable of changing body shape at will. And they try to promote neuroplasticity? With this? I was chewing on a fingernail. I put my hand down. I guess so. We could communicate almost without words, finishing the sentences of the other, talking in our own private jargon, for all the good that did us. So can the team put together a rig? Then something unexpected happened. His entire body became rigid and he only said, On such short notice? What short notice? I was trying to force calmness on myself. Donnie would not meet my eyes. Didn't you hear? We have to have something to present by Liberation Day, for the parade, that joke of a parade, around the station's perimeter, mimicking a Roshi custom. Not the parade. Donnie nodded, still not looking at me. That's a joke. Surely no one is taking it seriously. You know the joke about the mass drivers. How much of the military stuff on the parade is fake? Surely we wouldn't be the first. Lotsy takes it seriously, Donnie said. And the higher-ups with the junkies feeding them. Surely he realizes this might not work. I am not a pig they can take to the slaughter. He got off the desk and crouched down next to my seat until our faces were level. We have two weeks. Fourteen days. We need to think. I was dazed. I circled the station for the umpteenth time, bumping into passers-by, barely noticing them. A multi-sensory continuum. Virtual reality. Donnie saying not at such short notice. Even then, the rest of the lab folk were busy trying to put together some kind of rudimentary rig. The last time people had paid any attention to replacing everyday reality entirely had been hundreds of years in the past. On a space station, it does not pay to be entirely unaware of one's own surroundings. All modern computing was overlays, augmented reality, that sort of thing, clearly distinct from our usual sensorium, and thus no help to me at all. A burly man crashed into me and we both fell. Watch where you're going, he yelled. Damn junkie. I'm not, 
I was still shaking from the sudden impact. I was just thinking I'm a researcher. And what do you research, magic mushrooms? I mumbled words of apology, turned around and half walked, half ran away. Then I came to a sudden stop. Drugs. A simulated reality. This was Kata's area of expertise, and she did not like the idea. We can try, sure, but drug experiences are fundamentally uncontrolled. And here you'd need controlled exposure, repeatable, indeed repeated until it is ingrained. Donnie nodded sagely. Would he shut up for once and try not to play the smartass? Kata noticed the ferocity in my gaze. She hugged herself in her usual manner, positively meek. I'm sorry I don't have a solution for you. I clicked my tongue. We were so close. I felt angry, then just empty, curiously empty. I'd end up like those first dead mice, or the chimpanzees that could not change their shape despite every single cell in their body having been replaced by the form shifter. Or maybe Pimaz, the star animal subject who grew a tentacle to reach that banana once which occasion wasn't recorded because the apparatus had somehow hiccuped. It was hopeless. We could only dream. Dream. I jumped up. Dreams. Donnie jumped up too. Yes. Sorry? Kata must have thought we were losing it. Dreams aren't particularly controlled either, she finally ventured, pulling her limbs impossibly close to herself in defense, afraid we'd start to hit her in our fervor. Maybe. Lucid dreams, Donnie pronounced my thoughts with glee. Would that work? Kata asked in return. Lucid dream induction is easy and relatively painless and non-invasive. He proclaimed this like his own personal triumph. And for once I didn't mind even though I was the first to arrive at the idea. I have just the hardware. From your psychedelic phase? I wanted to snark, but I kept my mouth shut. We might have just found our solution. 3. Dirt smudges on the yellow painted bulkhead, banged up pipes running parallel with the floor at knee level. I touched the wall, my right palm flat against the surface. I savored the sensation for a brief moment, then pushed. The bulkhead yielded and my hand was swallowed up to the wrist. I pulled it back out again. Now that it was established I was dreaming, I had more important tasks to do than play with a wall. My body parts were all in place. I was wearing one of my long skirts and a loose-fitting shirt printed with a colorful pattern. My vision began to fade to black. The dream wavered. I had barely started and now I was getting booted out? My anger hastened the process and I had to fight to steady my feelings and stabilize the dream. I opened my eyes wide, tried to focus on seeing the room, the egg yolk yellow bulkheads closing in around me, then the position of my body, upright, not lying down in my berth, upright and moving. I took a step, touched the bulkhead again, turned around, walked ahead. The room around me reasserted itself, solidifying, sharpening. I was satisfied. I took a deep breath. Where to start? I grabbed my left hand with my right, 
twisted hard, a full 180 degrees. The hand twisted. I did not feel any pain, but when I wiggled the fingers on my left hand, and they moved in exactly the opposite direction compared to the usual, the mismatch between visual and proprioceptive input produced a nasty clash somewhere deep in my brain. I winced. The feeling was very unpleasant. Not painful, but close. I reminded myself I was dreaming. There was no risk of physical damage. But despite that, I found myself back in bed, an abrupt change that left me woozy. I reached toward my head, careful not to hit the top of my berth with my elbow, then rubbed my temples and yawned. I was awake, and every awakening was a chance wasted. Eleven days to go. Why do I have to fight just to maintain the dream? It's not a lucid dream maintenance rig, it's a lucid dream induction rig. Donnie frowned in displeasure. Thanks a lot for stating the obvious. Come on, just ten more days. And then it's over? I suppressed the urge to pace. There wasn't any room to pace. Ten more days until we completely blow it? Ten more days until I'm dead? So many things can go wrong. I hit the bulkhead with a fist. Pain lanced through my hand. The world seemed out of focus. I tried to look around. Take in everything. Force persistence on the environment. I was standing on a wide field of grass out of some Oroshi romantic drama. I couldn't care less. For my purpose, I could have been anywhere. I looked down at my body. Everything was as usual. I grabbed my hand and twisted. I fought down the instinct of aversion, the expectation of pain. How come I was feeling pain in dreams anyway? It certainly wasn't the usual physical pain. There was an odd magical quality to it. The hand was backwards. I felt no pain, not even discomfort. A step. I looked away, trying to wiggle my fingers out of my field of view. They felt normal. I raised my hand to look at it. It was indeed back to normal. I swore and got instantly booted out of the dream. Look, I'm trying. Donnie had become my fierce taskmaster, a slave driver even, someone no longer on my side. I stop paying attention and everything snaps back to normal. I've tried it with the hands, the arms, the legs. Your body template reasserts itself, he said, smoothing down his tangly beard. You just have to keep practicing for the template to change, to allow for more variation. And then what happens? He blinked. What do you mean, what happens? For once we were out of sync. You become a shapeshifter, ready to face the dangers of space. The leadership is happy, the Oroshi are happy. We pulled one over on the Dothron, that's all. He smiled without any mirth. That's not what I mean. I didn't want to say it out loud. Power always finds an owner for itself. He was completely puzzled. And what would that mean? It didn't happen in a field of grass or a cavern of stone. It happened on our own little station. I was standing on the perimeter walkway and it was strangely deserted. I had no idea how I'd gotten there. None at all. That was how I realized I was dreaming. I took a few steps forward, then jumped into the air, 
I flew just below the utility level, careful to keep my head down. It was easier to do it while in motion. I'd been practicing this form for a few days, in more spacious locations. I thought I should just change the scenery, pass through a wall to exit the dream scene and enter another, but something pushed me forward instead. I spread my arms and willed them to elongate, further, further, then willed them to broaden until I was, if not a bird, then a glider plane of some sort, or one of Donnie's make-believe spaceships. I closed and reopened my eyes. The wings were still there, the movement maintaining them, the entire situation itself conspiring to maintain them. This was my natural shape for the moment, the shape I needed, and thus the shape stayed. I was so distraught that the world began to fade to black, and I forced it to reemerge, because I needed one more moment of this, one more to be able to say I had done it, a misshapen aircraft being taking to the non-existent skies. Dothron pilots did not become their craft. But maybe I could go further, out of want, out of need. Then the walls came dangerously close, and as I tried to scramble back, the dream fell apart and I was left panting in my berth. Kata looked on the verge of tears. We need to accelerate the schedule. What? There's still three days until the parade. Recuperation shouldn't take that long. Donnie jumped up the motion jangling a box full of something metallic. We can do it, I said. Are you there already? Donnie glared at me. The changes are still not permanent. I'm close enough, I told him, glaring back. He was the first to look away. Four. They are making me invulnerable. The sound of my heart beating filled my ears. They are making me practically immortal. There was nothing else left to think except this. They have failed to make me loyal. We don't know how it feels, the lab tech said. But based on the behavior of the chimpanzees... Yeah, yeah, I know. Go ahead. Life should have flashed before my eyes. The cramped little rooms with their nooks and crannies, the ridiculous Liberation Day parades, the BTE list updated twice a year, my uncle weeping openly, just after he got word of the Hiroshi having shot down that passenger liner. But there was nothing, just a void. And then that void filled with pain. Do you survive being torn apart? Even if you do, something is irrevocably changed. Are you all right? Donnie was standing at my bedside, wringing his hands in anxiety, not even noticing. Sure. I struggled to form the words. My body felt as if it was on fire. Has it worked? Too early to say. But are you really all right? More or less. He could feel I was keeping something from him. He could feel I had a newfound secret. He didn't know what it was, and for the time being, that was good. I myself wasn't sure yet which course I'd take, only that I'd try to make a move, 
try to catch the Oroshi unprepared for once. They had no idea we'd progressed to a successful human trial. They didn't know what waited for them on the station. For possibly the first time in my life, I had the upper hand over them. I could force them into... exactly what? Lifting the travel restrictions, certainly. I wouldn't bring back all the people they'd murdered in cold blood, destroying passenger liners in the same unfeeling way as they destroyed our meager security forces. I wouldn't bring back my aunt, but I'd make life a little more bearable for everyone on the Fiji station. I just needed to work out the details. But surely that couldn't be that hard. I am ambulatory, I declared with a playful smile. A smile that hid an entire world. Donnie grinned back at me. That's great to hear. Two days to go. He frowned, and it made me think he was the type to develop wrinkles fast. They're already showing even when his face is smooth, and he's still so young. Why did we age so fast? The Oroshi and the Dothron always had such smooth faces. I walked out of the lab seldom used infirmary. He yelled after me. Don't kill yourself while experimenting. I thought I should hide myself, but on such a small station there are no secrets, and precious few hiding spots. I locked myself in our room, hoping Donnie wouldn't return any time soon, hoping he decided to spend some time with his girlfriend, to pull their relationship out of the rut of neglect. I used to think I'd never have a room to myself. When I finally married, I'd have a new room for my new family but never one for myself. If Donnie moved out earlier, I'd be pressed to move out and marry too. No space. No room. Not on the station. And the Oroshi controlled who came and who went. Instead of that room, I would have exactly what? The stars? How will the Oroshi react? I turned the thought around in my head. They know we're working on this project but I was more or less certain they hadn't heard about the human trials. This one human trial. Myself. Our leadership would have kept it from them, as a surprise for Liberation Day. Our politicals could be really boneheaded at times, but that's why they were still here on the station. The smart ones were in a Roshi space, promoted away from us. The technical term was counter-selection. I sighed and twisted my left hand with my right. It obligingly turned and remained in place. I twisted it back. Everything had a solidity to it. How much could I rearrange my body? How much would the sensory nerves protest? I tried another task from lucid dreams. I pressed my hand against my abdomen and pushed. My hand went through. My heart hammered in my chest. Don't get yourself killed. But I didn't seem to suffer any ill effects otherwise. That's not possible. I pulled out my hand. It was stained with what I tried to think of as organic matter, just organic matter, and watched as the stain was reabsorbed. It had subroutines built in. I definitely didn't want any material to be reabsorbed. My body had done it automatically. Maybe it would do other things automatically, too? How hard would it be to pass through a wall? It didn't seem like a trivial task, but weren't the Dothron astronauts supposedly capable of... Maybe there was a subroutine for that. It was hard to imagine they would put their precious people at risk. 
They were just the opposite of the Oroshi who threw sheer numbers at every problem, even problems of flesh and blood. And they had such a fondness for safeguards, their systems chiseled and perfect. Someone had to have worked out the details in advance. I didn't want my sensory nerves to be subjected to abruptly being cut off. I thought I was smarter than that. I should go back to the lab, I thought. They've decided to allow me so much space all of a sudden. We still need to run trials. I put a hand against a bulkhead and pushed. My arm went right into the wall, elbow deep. I didn't feel anything except a sense of mounting unease. Lothi seemed surprised I wanted to talk to him. I was just wondering if there was any specific demonstration you preferred to see, for when you show me to the Oroshi delegation, you know. When you show off to the Oroshi delegation. I liked the wings. Yes, I think that's eye-catching. A quite large-scale change. They are hollow, you know. Yes, but still, he grinned. And the mass drivers are fake. Ah, such an admission. How did he know? Was he just making this up on the spot for my benefit? To make me less afraid of the delegation? The inspection? It was time to bring it up. Casually. Carefully. It's going to be a great surprise, hmm? How much do they know? Ah, uh, they know we're actively working on the project, of course and I hinted at a breakthrough. This was bad. What kind of breakthrough? Oh, I didn't let slip the info about the human trials. His teeth showed a display of predation. I'm not that boneheaded. Five. I had to say something. I had to say goodbye. Donnie. Donnie, look. I was unsure what to say. They're not going to allow me to stay here. That much was probably true. Ooh, he tried to blink out sleep from his eyes. He'd spent the past days looking at the test results. Ooh, the Oroshi. But the lab is here. For all I know, they might take the entire lab. I didn't think so. I didn't want to lie to him, but... He hugged me. Don't worry, he whispered. I've always wanted to see the world. I had nothing to say to that. I hugged him back, fiercely. The Oroshi delegation was sitting on a tribune. It looked squashed together under our low ceiling, and it sat much closer to us than the tribunes we saw on Oroshi vids of their own military parades. The effect was more grotesque than majestic. Lotsi had pushed a sign into my hand. It said, Space Biologicals Research Institute and a phrase about Liberation Day that was too flowery for my stomach. My hands were shaking and I held the signpost to my body, afraid the shaking would show, but this only made my entire body tremble. I'd have to act soon, but I still hadn't made up my mind over which course of action would be the most preferable. A hostage situation? They didn't bring along a huge security detail, and wasn't I practically invincible anyway? Lotsey had made a point of the two of us standing at the front of the Institute column. We were barely a lab. All our designations were strikingly euphemistic. Some of the Oroshi were late, and we were growing weary of waiting for the march to start. Lotsey grabbed my hand. I almost dropped the signpost. 
and lifted it above our heads, waving to someone on the tribune, grinning. I stared at him in amazement as I tried to yank my hand out of his and saw him wink exaggeratedly. I followed the path of his gaze. An Aroshi man, tall, blonde, and pale, strongly built, stared at the two of us, frozen in motion halfway to sitting down. He straightened up, quick as a snake, and nudged one of his peers. They briefly conferred. Lotsi, my mouth did not want to move. You said you didn't tell them about the human trial. I didn't, he said in the periphery of my visual field. I saw he shrugged. I couldn't move. I stood ramrod straight. We must have someone else on the team reporting to them, too. So much for a surprise. Curse Arushi security. They find out about everything. That man up there, he just connected the dots. Is he with them? The Hiroshi Security Bureau, experts in modern equivalents of the rubber hose. I'd never seen one of them up close, or maybe I just hadn't known. Them? Ah, yes, the Bureau. Lotsi confirmed my worst fears. He babbled on, but I wasn't listening anymore. Surely they'd have some means of defense against me too, but could they have defenses against an unknown threat? The man pushed through the crowd on the tribune and vanished behind it. His hand was on his sidearm. Weren't those supposed to be ceremonial? He was coming for me. I couldn't just stand still. I dropped the sign. Someone swore at me, but I couldn't even think of a one-word response. My mind had ground to a screeching halt. The walkway up ahead was empty, waiting for the marchers. I didn't dare go that way. I turned around and broke into a run, elbowing people, tripping over them, not fast enough. Then I remembered that matter was transparent to me. I passed through the people, running, floating, flying until I reached the outer perimeter. I took a deep breath and passed through the wall, through a set of thick layers covering the station, into space. Some environmental condition must have been triggered, because my body rearranged itself, quite dramatically, judging from the brief twinges of pain. Safeguards indeed, I tisked, my mouth making no sound. Are all those preparations a waste? Maybe not. With my palms still to the hull, I could feel an alarm pulsing through the station. Why were they sounding a breach? To cause panic? To instill fear? I hadn't breached anything. This must have been another tactic of the Security Bureau. And what now? I needed to think. Should I go to the control center? Try to locate the delegation and take someone hostage? Would that be the best course of action? I had planned on doing something drastic and supremely self-destructive. I had thought my new body could take the abuse, but I hadn't had enough time to work out the details. I had come up with a thousand and one implausible plans, with no limits on what I could possibly do. It was hard to rule out anything. And now the security bureau was after me and I still had no plan. I was a scientist, not a superhero. I could destroy everything in a second. I could also fly away. Could I make a jump on my own, leaving station space? My spine tensed in anticipation. Or another transformation taking hold? I negated the instruction. No jumps just yet. What options did I have? Make the Oroshi leave by force? They would return. How much time until they managed to replicate our findings? Maybe a lot. 
They weren't used to reverse engineering. Try to cooperate with them from this newfound position of strength? Better than Lotzi or someone else in the lab? Who was the snitch anyway? Certainly not Donnie or... Enough. I needed to act. I turned my back on the stars. I passed back through. How much time had passed? More than enough, it turned out. The Hiroshi man was standing right at my entry point, a hand on his sidearm, waiting for me. Liberation day indeed, the bureau man grimaced. Now that I had more time to look at him, I could see that his eyebrows were implausibly wide, and that made him seem less perfect, more vulnerable. We stood staring at each other, close to the outer bulkhead, while chaos raged on the perimeter walkway. It's your turn to make demands, he said matter-of-factly. We would not like to see the station destroyed. I got the impression he was more concerned for the well-being of the delegation than the station itself. Neither would I. Good. I'm sure we can come to an agreement. Lift the travel restrictions. The word sounded smooth and practiced. I was surprised at myself. Then everybody would leave for Dothron's base. No. Some would leave. The population pressure would be lessened. But most would stay. This is our home. He nodded. And if I say no, you'll kill the delegation. I tried not to gape. These people assumed everyone was like them, with the same predilection for violence. I had wanted to take them hostage, not kill them outright. I slowly smiled. He read me completely wrong. He paled even further and he gritted his teeth. He still tried to hold his ground. You really think you can negotiate terms here, do you? Who else? Your elected leadership, maybe? Something nasty glinted in his eyes. Something evil. But the idea seemed fair enough. Why should I act like a one-woman vigilante squad? That would be just like the Oroshi. Surely I could do better than that. I held lethal force, but I wasn't about to resort to the modus operandi of dictators and autocrats. I'll let you work out the details. Come, I nodded toward the chaos. I'll get you there. Liberation Day finished in a negotiation room. Then it settled. The bureau man allowed himself a smile as he glanced over his own delegation. Many of them outranked him, but he had assumed leadership regardless. He was with the security bureau and that carried clout. Decisive force. He was the one who was assumed to take action in times of need, and that he'd done with relish. I was shaking. You can't do this to me. Sell me out. The accusation was on my lips, quickly retracted. I didn't want to make my situation even worse. The station chief spread his hands. I think we all agree that you are potentially a danger to the station. I am your future. I wanted to yell at him. I was your only chance, your only chance in decades. How else would you try to regain at least a semblance of independence with no fighter craft, no defensive capability? I bit my lips and steeled myself. The unnamed blonde man from the bureau looked at me, his gaze inscrutable. He talked at me, but he wasn't addressing me. He was addressing the station council. We contacted the Dothron. 
A murmur went through the room, a small wave of unrest. The man pretended not to notice. They have provided us with the emergency shutdown keys. Lotzi jumped to his feet. He was let in on the negotiations on the condition that he remained silent. But something had snapped in him. Why would they do that? You're lying! Hands from the council reached out to him, grabbed his clothing and pulled him back to his seat. He was about to choke on his breath. The bureau man spread his hands. They would not like to see the status quo upset either. It's all in the interest of the balance. It's all a game to you, Lotzi yelled before he was summarily dragged out of the room by his compatriots. My compatriots. I looked at his back and wondered, why this? The fake weapons, the fake centralized democracy, the official network of snitches and enforcers, excuse me, political officers. He could live with all of that. Why not the Oroshi Dothron cooperation behind the scenes? Did Lotsi really believe in all that propaganda about the Dothron being the Oroshi's worst enemy? These thoughts were a welcome distraction from my fate. In the silence, a councilwoman raised her hand. I was under the impression the Oroshi Alliance didn't have a death penalty. The man nodded, smiling at her. That never even occurred to me. At this, he looked back at me and offered just the briefest of nods, a flutter of the eye that could be construed as a wink. We have delicate methods, he continued. We will take you to the capital. Unconscious. We have our researchers. And they're experts who'd make me loyal. Or find some other way to get me to cooperate. I could still escape, but what would happen to the station then? Should I make a stand against our own leadership? Even when they sided with the Oroshi and decided to turn me over? They were still the only representatives we had, and I could hardly take justice into my own hands. If you cooperate, there will be no repercussions, he said. And the travel regulations, he didn't say restrictions, will be eased somewhat. Otherwise, there's no telling. The counselors all looked at me expectantly. The Hiroshi delegation, on the other hand, looked bored. The bureau man had finished his task. I nodded and stood. It's finished, then. It's all over. The counselors looked relieved. The Hiroshi seemed unperturbed. I can't make a stand against my own people, even for my own people. Please come closer, the man said. Something in his voice hinted at a hidden warmth. He didn't want to make this any harder for me. What followed would be hard enough, he knew. The codes are transmitted via an encrypted wireless signal, but I need to catch you when you fall. I walked around the long oval of the table. Time stretched to infinity. Would they take my mind away from me? Would it be worth it for just a small improvement? Eased somewhat. That could mean anything. Eased for their own lackeys? Definitely not for the rest of us. I should have been smarter, more cunning, but how could I have acquired the tools of the trade? The ways to act from a position of such privilege? How could I have learned that? The councilwoman who'd spoken earlier was soundlessly crying, her hands covering her face, and I felt ashamed for her. Why would she make such a scene? 
looks so weak. It was not her life. She was making us all look bad. As I passed behind her, something clanged. She must have kicked one of the table supports by accident. I shuddered, ready to bolt. Sorry, I'm... She offered in a wheezy voice. My skirt is stuck. She kicked the table again, and as the sound reverberated, she whispered to me, rapidly, barely audibly, without taking her hands from her face, hiding her mouth so that the Oroshi wouldn't notice. All her discomfort had been just play-acting. I didn't know whether to feel relieved or even more betrayed. I walked along with my head held high, passing our half of the table, then behind the Oroshi. I turned to look at me with mild curiosity tainted with disgust. Oh, we're so uppity, one of them said, shaking his head. I'll catch you when you fall, the bureau man reiterated. Thank you for your cooperation. Nothing else is required. How telling, I thought. And as my legs gave way and I slipped into mercifully painless unconsciousness, the councilwoman's voice was still resonating in my mind. We still have your data and more. We won't forget. Our time will come. So that is show 402 put to bed like I say we've we've driven past now show 400 is in the background it's just a, a twinkling star in the distance there so we've got like see all kind of things now we're kind of buzzing to, to bring new things up on starships over like I say we're going to be ramping up starships over soon and like I say the newsletter I'm excited about that because it's, it's it's certainly a lot better than I can kind of do it as well. So, but have a look, have a look and see what you think of the news. I honestly would love feedback. Do you know what I mean? There actually is going to be like a letter section in there as well. So, just you know, do you like what we're doing on the newsletter? Tell me about you know new writers. Honestly, I miss everyone thinks I know loads about kind of you know writers and science fiction, but new ones are coming around all the time, man. It's just like. I'm not saying I kind of, I get a little kind of, little needle pin in the heart when I've missed a writer, you know what I mean? I think, oh, well, how did I miss that? Do you know what I mean? Like, say, Emily St. John Mandel come along with Station Eleven, I was harping on about that last week. How did I, you know what I mean? That one that kind of, was it the Arthur C. Clarke Award? I've just missed it. I read it last week. And what a book, man. What a book. I'm reading another one at the moment, and hopefully I'm going to get, I think, Becky Chambers, I think she's called, going to get her on the show for an interview. A long journey to a small, angry planet, which is just fantastic. Yeah, I'm waffling, I'm waffling now. My apologies. I could do this all day, you know. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. Well, I just want to keep us going, man. Get out of the day job and just do this full time. That would be fantastic. Support the show with a monthly donation. Help us reach my dream and help Starships over and all District Wonder shows keep going. Until next week, just like you say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? in next week for the next exciting installment of Sofa of that Procedure Machine.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.